So as I said earlier, we're beginning a new sermon series this morning on the book of Leviticus, which is the third book in the Bible after Genesis and Exodus. This sermon series is going to be called Living in the Present, and along the way in the sermon today, I'm going to explain why I'm preaching on this book and why we have that series title, but I want to begin by jumping into the text. So let's go to Leviticus 1, and we'll read from verse 1 to verse 9 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that is on the altar. He is to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is, a, it is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And this is God's word for us this morning. Let me start by telling you a little bit about my great-uncle Harvey. Great-uncle Harvey was, you could say interesting, you could also say crazy. And he was a pig farmer back in the day, and he had very, very many strong opinions. And one of his strong opinions is, I will not, eat any, I will not feed my pigs anything that I haven't eaten myself. And so whenever a new pig feed came out, he would get a bit of it. He would bring it home, and he would bring some into the house and pour it into one of his cereal bowls, put some milk in with it, let it mix for a while, and then he would sit down to his breakfast of pig feed. And if he liked it, the pigs got it. If he didn't like it, the pigs didn't get it. And that, that's a little out there, right? But that's pretty much typical behavior for great uncle Harvey. Now, most of us have a crazy uncle or great uncle in the family. Some of us probably are that crazy uncle or great uncle. What can you say? But, you know, we, we love these people, and to some extent we have to, right, because they're part of the family. But often we don't know quite what to do with them. At family gatherings, we invite them and they're there, but, but it's kind of hard to know how to interact with them. You can't really walk up to somebody and say, so how is the latest pig feed taste? That's... That's just not socially what you want to do, right? Leviticus, this book that we're jumping into this morning is, is the crazy great uncle of the Bible. We believe in it. We have to because it's in the Bible, but we're not quite sure what to do with it. So we often kind of just leave it on the edge of the family gatherings and try not to talk about it too much. As one of my professors used to say, Leviticus has none of the action and it's got all of the rules. None of the exciting stories, or very few of them, and lots and lots and lots of rules. So we often avoid Leviticus like the plague, and, 
And by the way, Leviticus has lots of rules about the plague and everything else you can think of. And that makes it a hard book. But that's exactly why I want us to spend some time working on it together because because it is a book in the Bible. It is God's inspired word given to us. And even though we don't often know what to do with it, there is real life to be found in this book. Now, we aren't going to do a deep dive and work through every single text and answer every single question you might have. That's, that's not my goal with this series. I anticipate over the next couple months we'll spend probably five, five sermons on this whole book, and that'll be enough to give us a big picture of the book, to get a sense of what's going on here and why it matters. It will not answer all of your questions, but I'm hoping it's enough to help all of us be a little more familiar with this crazy uncle of a biblical book. So we're going to begin this morning with the beginning of Leviticus, and my first point is the Lord's call. The Lord's call. And that's where Leviticus starts. Let's take a look again at Leviticus 1, chapter 1. Leviticus begins with these words, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him. And if we were actually going to have a really, really literal translation, that would begin, and the Lord called. And the Lord called. And Hebrew, the original language of Leviticus and most of the Old Testament, really loves to have and at the beginning of sentences. So we can't always read something into that. But here in Leviticus chapter 1, that and is significant. We need to pay attention to that. It tells us that Leviticus doesn't just drop out of heaven, that we shouldn't begin with Leviticus. We should, we should understand that Leviticus is stepping into the middle of a conversation. In Exodus, the book before Leviticus, the Lord comes to his people who are slaves in Egypt. And they are, they are under the thumb of the gods and kings of Egypt. And the Lord comes and with all kinds of mighty acts, he delivers his people from Egypt. And there are miracles, and the Lord shows His power and His love for His people, and He brings them out. And then He brings them to Mount Sinai, and the second half of Exodus puts us at Mount Sinai, and the Lord gives all kinds of instructions, instruction upon instruction upon instruction about how exactly the tabernacle is to be built. And the tabernacle is this big tent that's going to be right in the middle of the Israelites' wilderness camp. They're all living in tents at this point. And the Lord instructs them to build a big tent at the middle for him to live in. And then at the end of the book of Exodus, the Lord comes down from Mount Sinai and he he fills, his presence fills that tent in the middle of the Israelites' camp. The Lord is dwelling in the midst of his people. But then there's a problem. The Lord's glory is in the tent in the middle of his people. They're together, but, but nobody absolutely nobody, not even the leaders, not even Moses or Aaron, nobody can enter the tent because God's presence is there and God's glory and holiness would kill them if they entered that tent. And, and then we come to Leviticus. And Leviticus is all about the Lord instructing His people so that they can enter His presence. Leviticus is all about God making a way, making ways for His people to live with Him without being 
destroyed. God's presence is so glorious and overwhelming that, that people can't go there. But the Lord makes the way. And that's the significance of the, the Lord called Moses at the beginning of Leviticus. And the word for called there, it's not just a casual, yeah, I called him up one day. It's, it's the word that's used for naming people. It's a word that's used for creating a new reality. So when the Lord calls Moses and speaks to him, these are weighty words. These are instructions that will change the world. When the Lord calls Moses, we should expect what follows. And what follows is the whole book of Leviticus. But we should expect what follows to be transformative. And what follows is what enables us as God's people to live in His presence. And that's where the title for this sermon series got started. I'm calling it Living in the Present. Living in the Present because I think Leviticus still speaks to us today. But I want us to have two ideas as we go through this sermon series together. One of them is that Leviticus does actually matter for today, and I hope through this series we see how that matters. But but underneath that, in playing with that word a little bit, I want us to see how Leviticus is about us living in the presence, living in the very present presence of God. And that's why I chose the particular picture you see up on the screen now as kind of the main picture, the picture we'll be coming back to over the course of this series. And you probably, if you've lived in Chicago for any length of time, you probably recognize what that picture is. If you look on the right, that's some buildings in downtown Chicago, and what's on the left there? Anybody know what that is? It's the bean. You get it now, right? The left, if you see a little bit of a curve, that's a reflection of the edge of the bean, and then the right is the city of Chicago. And Leviticus, sometimes it's subtle like that. Sometimes it's really obvious. But Leviticus takes life and it shifts it. It takes life and it gives us a little bit of a different reflection to help us see what is really going on. Leviticus shows us how to live in God's present presence. And let me stop there for just a moment. And and I want you to reflect I want you to reflect on this. How often do you really, intentionally, consciously live with the awareness that you are living in God's presence? And I'm not talking about, we could go, and and we'll go there at some point down the road, we could go with how does living in God's presence transform how we live, but leave that idea aside for a minute. And just think about how often do you live with an awareness that God lives with us? How often do we live with an awareness that God's overwhelming, holy, mighty, and loving presence is with us right now? In everything that we do, the Lord of the universe goes with us. We have been brought in. How often do we live with that perspective, really? And how much would that perspective change our lives? We'll keep talking about that throughout our series on the book of Leviticus. But for this morning, let's let's dig into the first section of Leviticus, which is all about sacrifice. And we'll start by talking about the Israelite sacrifice that we see here 
in Leviticus chapter 1. So the Israelite sacrifice, animal sacrifice, probably not a practice that a whole lot of us spend a lot of time thinking about these days, right? And when we read these texts, we probably have kind of a vague picture of, yeah, an animal gets killed and they do these things and it's all kind of confusing. But let me ask you this. Quick show of hands. How many of you have ever been present at the slaughter of an animal? Few of us? Okay, not a whole lot. Well, when animals get slaughtered, it is a bloody mess, right? If you've ever been there when someone chops the head off a chicken to get it ready for dinner, or if you're a hunter and you've had to gut an animal, or if you've ever been, ever worked or been in a butcher shop, it is a mess. There's blood all over the place, there's gurgling, there's stuff sloshing around, there's all these messy blood and guts bits that you have to deal with. I mean, I'm not going to get into all the details, we don't need to go there, but, but you can probably picture enough to get a sense that this is an occasion, and it is messy. And a lot of the first section of Leviticus, the first seven chapters, are about that messiness. And this morning, we read a step-by-step guide. The Israelite worshiper has to pick out an unblemished animal from his flock, and I'm going to say he because that's what the text says, and it was mostly guys who got to do this. But he has to pick out this unblemished animal and bring it to the priest at the altar and lay his hands on it to show that he's somehow identified with it. And then he has to slaughter it. And normally we picture the priest being the one who slaughters the animal, but it's actually, it's actually the regular guy. He has to bring this animal and he has to slaughter it. He has to get down into the messiness of all of it. And while he's doing that, the priest collects the blood and the priest throws the blood up against the altar, and then the one who brings the sacrifice has to cut it up bit by bit and give it piece by piece to the priest, and the priest burns it up piece by piece. Pretty, we can pick all kinds of words here, right? But pretty gross and pretty weird. And when we read texts like this, and we actually stop and think about what's going on there and picture I mean, picture a day where a couple hundred people came to offer a sacrifice and think about what that actually looked and smelled and felt like. And why in the world, why in the world does God tell his people to get involved in this? Leviticus doesn't spend a whole lot of time explaining the meaning of the sacrifices. It just just tells us what to do or tells the ancient Israelites what to do. And we in our culture are at a significant disadvantage when we come to texts like this because we just don't get it. When I was uh, teaching in Africa, I was teaching on Leviticus once and, and I was thinking how to explain sacrifice and I brought up the term and one of the guys in the class raised his hand and said, oh yeah, my uncle sacrificed a chicken last night. I said, what? Oh yeah, my uncle sacrificed a chicken last night. There was this going on, he did it. Oh, can you explain Leviticus to me? A lot of the world just gets this in ways that we don't. But we can trace out a couple meanings of the Israelite sacrifice here. One is that this sacrifice and all the sacrifice, or at least most of the sacrifices mentioned at the beginning of Leviticus, are a reminder. These sacrifices are a brutal, bloody reminder of how much sin costs. Think about if every time you sinned, you had to pick out an animal and go and slaughter it yourself in order to pay for that sin. 
Now, Leviticus, later in this chapter, it says if you can't afford a bull, you can bring a smaller animal. If you can't afford that, you can bring a bird. So there's, there's conditions offered for people to have this not be something totally devastating to them financially. But this sacrifice is costly. This is people bringing something that they would not want to bring in order to pay for their sins. This would take real time and real energy and real commitment. And it was a frequent reminder that wrongdoing costs something. And that's true all the time that sin costs the Lord and costs us and costs this world. But, but these sacrifices are a lived out reminder that, that sin costs something. And along with that, sacrifice was a ransom. In the Old Testament, people could sometimes get out of a punishment by paying a ransom. So instead of undergoing the punishment itself, they could instead pay a penalty. And that payment took away or reduced, reduced the guilt for their wrongdoing. And again, the idea was this costs something. Your wrongdoing costs something, and the sacrifice pays for it. And from the Old Testament perspective, that was a wonderful thing. There are situations mentioned early in the Bible that, that the cost for this particular infraction was death. You do this or you allow this to happen and you earn the death penalty. But often provision was made that if you make an offering, if you bring a sacrifice, the death of the animal meant that you didn't have to die. For the ancient Israelites, these sacrifices were wonderful, good news. But the problem was they never ended. Year after year, decade after decade, lifetime after lifetime, you had to keep paying, and God's people had to keep paying. And there was no long-term answer besides to keep on slaughtering the animals. But this was never intended to be the long-term solution. The slaughter of all those animals really wasn't valuable enough to pay the penalty. Really what it was 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 a sort of stopgap solution, a sign of the salvation that Jesus' sacrifice would bring. So let's talk about Jesus' sacrifice. And we see, you know, we see talk about Jesus' sacrifice all over the New Testament. All over the New Testament, the biblical authors are, are picking up on Leviticus and other, New Test, or other Old Testament books and saying, look, Jesus fulfills this. And let me give you just one little picture of that this morning. In the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, if we read Revelation chapter 5, that's in the middle of a vision about heaven, and God's on His throne, and there's saints and angels and all kinds of things going on. And then John, who wrote the book of Revelation, he, he sort of pans the camera, and he shows us this lamb who has been slain. This lamb who has been slain. And my guess would be when most of us have read the book of Revelation, if we've read through Revelation 5, we picture a nice, cute, cuddly lamb sort of bouncing around with all its fur or whatever it is that lambs have. And it's not actually that kind of picture. This is a lamb that has been sacrificed. So think back to that bloody mess that we talked about with sacrifices. Think back to how unpleasant and, and smelly and actually how awful it would be and how awful it is to see an animal that has been sacrificed. This is not cute and cuddly. 
This is costly and messy. But that's the picture the Bible gives us of that heavenly lamb. And that heavenly lamb is Jesus Christ slain for our sins. And right after the book of Revelation shows us that lamb, it shows us this chorus singing to the lamb, singing to the lamb of God, to Jesus. You were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ pays for us, pays for us to belong to the Lord. This text from Leviticus intends to confront us and then to comfort us. And it confronts us with with this mess of sacrifice. And just like it did for the Old Testament people, it comes to us and it says, look at that. Look at that mess. Look at all the trouble and the suffering and the bloodshed and the nastiness there. And don't look away. You caused that. You caused that. Just like it was for God's Old Testament people, these sacrifices in Leviticus are a reminder to us, a reminder to us that we have done terrible things. A reminder to us that we have caused, that we have caused evil, that we have done evil, that we have put ourselves and put this world in a situation where there is a cost to be paid. Do you see how you've messed up your kids? Do you see how you've disrespected your parents? Do you see how you dehumanize those people you work with? Do you see how you've damaged yourself? Do you see all that? All that and more? We've done that. And Leviticus confronts us with that reality and says, don't look away. Don't you dare look away. The Bible is a terribly honest book. Most of us don't want to confront our own problems. We would rather cover it up or sweep it under the rug or, or self-medicate so we don't have to acknowledge how, how bad things really are. We have a thousand coping strategies, a thousand ways that we make ourselves blind, but Leviticus comes and it tells us to look to look at the reality of our situation in life apart from Christ. But then Leviticus gives us signs that comfort us too. Leviticus doesn't just come, and the Bible doesn't just come and say, look at how terrible you are. It does do that, but it does that so that it can show us the cure. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, the true sacrifice, He comes to all of that mess And he pays for it all. Every bit of the sin and evil and guilt and wrongdoing and brokenness in our life is paid for by Christ. Christ pays it all. And that's why we don't bring animal sacrifices here anymore. Because we don't need them. Because Christ is the perfect sacrifice. Now this gets gets messy. Just like Old Testament people, the Old Testament people of God, we have to come and, and we have to acknowledge that, yeah, we've messed up. And yeah, life isn't how we need or want it to be. But we can come and we lay that at the feet of Jesus and He pays the price. 
He pays the price for us. And that leads to our final point for, t- for today, our salvation. Our salvation. So as I worked through this text, and even as I talked it through with some of you, I was thinking to end with a point, our, our sacrifice, how we serve the Lord. But late this week, I decided just to drop all that, and we'll get into it next week. But I think we need to begin our work with the book of Leviticus by ending not with how we serve God, but how God saves us. Some of us worry, and I mean genuinely worry, that our sins are too dark and too deep for the Lord to deal with them. Some of us can't even look at our lives honestly because we are too afraid of who we really are. But the Lord knows all that, and the Lord has provided for all that. And by Christ's wounds, we are saved. Now, for some of us, that sounds trite, and and yeah, I know that. For others of us, that sounds simply unrealistic. How could Christ really pay for my sins? And yet it is true. And it is, it can be the greatest truth of our lives. You know, great Uncle Harvey, we thought he was crazy for eating his pig's feed, and and I think he was right. It's hard to imagine a sane farmer or a sane saying owner of animals, thinking that he needs to eat their food. But think about what Jesus did for us. You know, it sounds nuts to us for a farmer to go out and collect his animals' food and eat it, but, but think of how much higher God is than us. Think of how much greater Jesus is than us. And yet Jesus came down to us, and he became like one of us. And he ate our food, he walked the roads that that regular people walked, he, he slept, he did everything that regular people do except for sin. And now let's take this analogy a step farther. Can you imagine a pig farmer being willing to be slaughtered on behalf of one of his pigs? Can you imagine that? That would be crazy, right? And yet, for us, for you, Jesus was slaughtered. For each of us, Jesus loved us so much that He didn't just come and live among us. He came and suffered and died for us. And that is amazing and that is beautiful. And that is where we find our salvation. And so as we, as we work through the book of Leviticus, we'll talk a lot about how we need to respond to that and, and the work and the gifts that God gives us. But we need to begin with this gift that the sacrifice of Jesus provides for our salvation. What matters the most in your life is not what you have done or what you will do, but what Jesus has done and is doing and will do for you. That is where we need to begin as Christians, and that is where we need to be as a church. Not what do I do and not what have I done and not how great or how terrible I am, but how... How terrible Christ's sacrifice was and how great it is that his sacrifice has provided for our salvation. Through the work of Jesus, the Lord brings us into his presence. By ourselves, we could not, we could not approach the glorious presence of God, but but God himself came down to us. God himself paid the debt that we owed. He opened the way for us 
to enter his presence and to live with him all the time. We now are the, are the tent that God, that God lives in. We today are God's people who he dwells with and dwells within. And that is the great good news that we need to hear, that, that we live in God's presence. That Jesus' work brings us to the Lord. And that changes everything. Let Christ's sacrifice bring you, bring all of us into the present presence of the Lord today. Let's pray. Father, so often in these days when we hear talk about about sacrifice and about our salvation, it sounds cliche or it sounds irrelevant. But Father, we pray that today as we've heard from Leviticus, as we've heard you speak your words to us, help us to grasp with our minds and our hearts how deeply how deeply we are in need of your sacrifice. Father, help us to look toward you and to see in the work of Christ our our gateway, our passage from death into life. And Father, help this to be not just something we think about and then put away, but something that truly transforms our perspectives and our lives. Help us to really recognize the comfort, the security, and the salvation that Jesus Christ gives us. Help us to look to the sacrifice of Christ and and to recognize the cost and the pain and the suffering involved, but in that to see your love and your grace. Father, we thank you for the Lamb of God given for us. Amen.